Okay, I think we're ready to convene our regular work session for August the 21st, 2018. Troy, are you going to start? Dr. Barnum, hi. Welcome back. Good to see you again. Good evening. Uh, first of all, uh, the chief would very much like to be here. Uh, he had planned to be here. He forwarded me some opening remarks uh, due to a procedure that he had done last week and the death of his father. Uh, he's not able to make it tonight. He's uh, actually ushering family back uh, for funeral service arrangements. Uh, I'd like to reintroduce you to Dr. Christopher Barnum. He's the Associate Professor of Sociology and Criminal Justice and Director of Graduate Studies Masters in Criminal Justice at St. Ambrose University. Uh, he has presented to the council before. Uh, many of you are, are personally familiar with him. Uh, today, he's going to present on the 2016 and 2017 analysis by his group uh, of our traffic data, our, our traffic stop data. And again, the chief had prepared some opening remarks. I apologize that I'm just going to read these, but I think it's important that you hear them in his words. The Iowa City Police Department's collected demographic data on traffic stops since 1999. The first analysis was in 2004 entitled Traffic Stop Practices of the Iowa City Police Department, January 1 through December 31, 2002. The research team was from the University of Louisville, and this report was frequently referred to as the Louisville Study. In 2006, the ICBD hired Dr. Christopher Barnum to conduct an in-depth analysis to better understand operational trends in the department. The goal was to reduce the traffic stop disproportionality and gain the confidence and trust of our community, especially the minority community. Dr. Barnum conducted an analysis on data from 2005 to 2012 and presented the results to the Iowa City City Council on June 16, 2014. He presented the 2015 data analysis results on April 19, 2016. Dr. Barnum met with some Iowa City Police Department officers in 2014 and 2016 to explain his methodology and the results uh, of his study. According to then Iowa City Police Chief Sam Hargadine, the officers asked concerned questions and were generally interested in the results of the analysis. Concerns nationwide about police misconduct and the perceptions of police by the entire community do weigh heavily on the minds of the officers. It is my belief that the Iowa City Police Department officers continually strive to improve the ways in which they serve. In 2015 and 2016, ongoing professional development included training specifically on race-based traffic stops, implicit bias, and diversity. In 2006, ICPD officers received training in diversity, discrimination, and cultural competency. Titles of some of these classes were Affordable Housing Conference and Working Together in a Diverse World. All officers received training in fair and impartial policing and biased-based policing via online courses. In January 2017, Police Chief Matherly was hired and immediately implemented a strategy to address disproportionate minority contact. It consists of three components. One, education and training. Courses in cultural competency increased from 257 hours in 2016 to 1,132 hours in 2017. Additionally, a $450,000 grant was obtained to address gender bias in police work, specifically investigations. 
Two, community outreach. While the ICPD continues a tradition of successful community policing strategies, the department has enhanced its problem-oriented policing and increased involvement in social organizations and community groups. The goal is to educate the public and continually reassess what the community wants and expects from their police agency. And finally, number three, deployment of resources. We continue to develop robust intelligence systems so crime trends can be quickly identified and communicated to patrol officers. To simply saturate minority neighborhoods, stop drivers for minor violations, arbitrarily search vehicles for weapons and drugs does not statistically produce more results than stopping white drivers. Such tactics do nothing more than erode trust within the minority community. Instead, officers are encouraged to conduct traffic enforcement in areas where high crash rates occur and address residents' traffic complaints. In late 2017, an Iowa City Police Department committee was formed to develop strategies to reduce disproportionate minority contact, increase community trust, improve internal communication and education regarding disproportionate minority contact, and develop creative and supportive ways for officers to be more effective at their jobs. One of the committee's initiatives is the Bulbs Program, a partnership with local repair shops to reduce I'm sorry, a partnership with local repair shops to help those who cannot afford to repair burnt out lights on their vehicles by replacing the bulb for free. Such a program can have positive impact and alleviate fear that drivers may get stopped for defective equipment and have their vehicles searched. Emphasis has also been placed on the recruitment of minority candidates for police officer positions to more accurately reflect these racial demographics of the Iowa City community. Finally, there is more work to do in addressing disproportionality in traffic stocks, according to the St. Ambrose study results that Dr. Barnum is about to present for 2016 and 2017. However, in 2017, there was a significant reduction in the disproportionality in outcomes, such as citations and searches, which is encouraging. The Iowa City Police Department will continue to identify where disparity exists, that we have influence over and address it in a fair and consistent manner. Again, I wish Chief Matherly was here to present that to you himself. I know that he would like to be, but with that, I'm going to turn this over to Dr. Barnum to present the data analysis for 2016 and 2017. Thank you for having me here tonight. I'm Chris Barnum from St. Ambrose and I will uh, present the data that we've been collecting. We've, we've actually been working with Iowa City for quite a while now, um, and some of you have, have seen my presentation before. So uh, what I, since I have two years worth of data, instead of going through each year piece by piece, which might be kind of time consuming, what I'll do is kind of um, highlight the important areas, highlight our methodologies so you have a good understanding of how we do our work. And then I will um, point to the areas that I think are probably the most important, significant of what we found in the study. And of course, if you have any questions, you know, you can ask me. And I, I think probably the best way to ask me is just to ask as I'm presenting the data rather than waiting to the end because that'll save some time that way. So um, when, we do, when we do work like this, uh, and we, we actually are working with several communities, so we're starting to get quite a bit of uh, experience and expertise at doing this. What we look for are two essential features in police data. So when you do an analysis like this, what we do is we kind of divide it up into two basic processes. Uh, the decision to make a stop is the first one, the officer's decision to make a stop. You know. 
That's the tricky part. And then the second part is the outcome of the stop. What happens after the stop occurs? That part's a little more straightforward because we don't have, uh, we, have a, we have a fixed data set that we can compare there. So the tricky part about the first part, the decision to make a stop, is what we do is we get, the, we get the data from the police department and we'll look at percentages based on racial categories. So uh, what percentage of the stops were African Americans, what percentage were white, what percentage were Asians, and so forth. And then we have to compare that to something, and that, now that's the tricky part. It's tricky in several ways. First of all, um, most communities are not homogenous in terms of racial composition across, across the geographic area. And so if stops are made more in one section of town than in another, then you have to, you know, you have to go where the stops are being made to figure out what the percentage of the uh, racial composition of the drivers on the roads are in those areas. So we spend a lot of time uh, in the communities we work uh, with going out and establishing what we call benchmarks. And what that is is we actually go out and watch the traffic. And my grad students do it, actually. I don't do it. <laughs> what they do is they, they look at cars and they try to determine the race and gender of the drivers. And they just keep a tally. And then we compute the percentages of uh, different racial categories on the roads that we see in specific areas of town based on what the grad students see. We also then try to validate that by looking at census data and some other things. But um, we've, been, we've been doing um, traffic observations now in Iowa City for nearly 10 years. And we're doing them right now. We're continuing this process right now. My students will be down here again this weekend. And we probably were in the neighborhood of over, I don't want to give you a hard and fast figure, but I know the last time I counted, we were, we were approaching 70,000 observations. So we've, we've watched a lot of traffic here. <coughs> so that's sort of the, the methodology. So the hardest part of doing this type of work is the first part. Looking at the police data on the decision to make a stop and determining, does that, do the numbers differ from what we think they, they uh, should be based on the benchmark values that we see? So um, on the screen now is kind of um, how we do this. So that's obviously a map of Iowa City broken out by uh, one mile, uh, one square mile areas. And what we do is we track the stops made in each of those squares, and then we go to the ones that have the most uh, stops made, and we really focus on watching traffic. And we watch traffic both during the day and at night, on weekends, football weekends, and so on. We, so we try, to get a, we try to get a good benchmark that way. And so, um, so, I'm going to skip to this slide right here. So each of these little squares are numbered. And when we get the data from the police department, the stop will indicate which location it occurred by that number. So we can track where the stops were made. And so if I go back to the previous slide, you can see that this slide shows, and this, this was actually from 2016, but 17 is very similar to this, that most of the stops are made in one area of town, zone number 21, and that's downtown. That's the downtown area. So uh, of the, of the 12,000, almost 13,000 stops made in 
that year, uh, over 6,000 of those stops took place downtown. And then, uh, so zone 29, which is, let's see if I can get this mouse to work, yep, right there, is right here. That's the second most place. That would be immediately south of downtown, sort of like the Broadway cross park area. And then adjacent to those areas was also, uh, were also areas that had um, quite, a, quite a few stops made. So this map that I have on here now shows you the areas where the lion's share of the, of the stops were made by the uh, Iowa City Police Department. Zone 21, the downtown zone, by far had the most. And that, that was true across days, nights, weekends, whatever. And then uh, second highest was zone 29, which is immediately south, the area I just talked about. And then uh, the other two areas also had, uh, in comparison to other areas, relatively uh, high numbers of stops. So at this point, since I've already given you a lot of information, would you like me to go back and show you that previous slide so you can look at that again with the, with the bars? Or are you, uh, this one right here? Or are you comfortable with me moving forward? Okay, so, so what we do then um, is now that we know where the stops are generally being made at, that's where we really focus on doing traffic observations. So we go out and my grad students uh, set up at different locations throughout those one mile areas and do exactly what I said. They, they watch traffic and they record the race and gender of the drivers that they see according to their perceptions. And then we cross-validate what they see. So each of them rotate through the same location so I can check and see if pretty much all of them are seeing the same thing. Generally, we have a rather high correlation between observers in the, in the neighborhood. Uh, if you used a correlation coefficient of uh, 0.8 or above, so they're all seen pretty similar things through the, through, the, um, through the intersections that they're watching, which gives us some confidence that our benchmarks are probably stable at least, and hopefully valid. Now, um, we're currently in the process of watching traffic again this year because there was some indication in the last two years in the data that maybe the benchmarks were changing. So we, the analyses that I'm going to show you tonight are based on benchmarks that we've already established, but uh, keep in mind that we're watching right now to see whether those ben benchmarks are indeed um, valid. I have, a, I have a feeling, although it's too early to tell, that maybe uh, the benchmarks have creeped up a little bit. And what that would mean is if the benchmarks have changed, then the level of disproportionality that we see might be a little bit too high based on the old benchmarks. So that's why we're looking to see right now. So this gives you some, this was information up to 2015. At that time, we'd made about 56,000 observations. But like I said, we've been watching again. So we're probably, we're probably in the neighborhood of pushing around 70,000. And you can see we're watching certain areas a lot more than other areas, which makes sense because that's where most of the stops are being made. So what we do essentially is we establish a benchmark for the city in general, which is 10%. 10% of the drivers on the roads, we argue, are minority drivers. 
except in the areas that we watch extensively, and then we use our benchmarks in those areas. And we base our benchmark in the other areas off census data. So in areas that we've watched, and again, these are subjects to change because we are currently updating. During the day in the downtown area, uh, this slide breaks out actually what we saw. So our benchmark there indicates that it's 7% of the drivers were minority drivers. We usually won't go below 10%, so we use 10% in the analyses. And then at night, it changes. So we saw more minority drivers on the roads at night than during the day, which is uh, typical for what we find when we look at this across different communities, at least in Iowa. And so in the downtown area, our benchmark is about 18% at night. And so then that area just south of downtown, the Broadway Cross Park area during the day, uh, it depends on where you're at there. That's a very interesting area. So certain areas are higher than 25%. Certain areas are quite a bit lower than 25%. But um, an overall average for that square mile area is uh, about 25% of the drivers on the roads there are minority drivers. That's during the daytime hours. And then at night, it bumps up to about 32%, so about a third of the drivers. So zone 30 would be the area immediately east of the Broadway area. So if, as you move east from there, uh, both days and nights, our benchmarks are at 17% uh, for that location. And then 28 would be the area immediately west of uh, the Broadway area. And that, what we found there was about 14% for both days and nights. So now it's a simple matter. Uh, Statistically speaking, what we do is we take the police data, compare the stops made in those zones percentage-wise to the, our percentages that we say are on the roads, and any difference is known as disproportionality. So uh, disproportionality, just as a word of caution, doesn't necessarily mean bias or that the police were doing anything wrong. It simply means that there's a difference between the percentage in their data and the percentage in what we say the benchmarks are. Uh, it's possible that there could be uh, Due to socioeconomic reasons, there could be differences in driving populations in terms of uh, equipment violations on cars and so forth, which could lead to disproportionality. So there are there there is a possibility for legitimate reasons for disproportionality to occur, uh, but bias is also a possibility. So it's the whole gamut. Y'all with me? Uh, and then uh, this caveat that one thing to really keep in mind about when you're, when you're observing traffic like this is that essentially we're taking a sample of drivers on the roads as we're watching. And like any, any sample, there's sampling error associated with that. So, you know, um, our benchmarks could be off by a couple points. And so that's why I don't, so when I analyze data like this, I don't get too hung up on the absolute difference between percentages. What I, what I like to look at are changes in data. And then I really like to look at individual officer data and see if any individual officers are different than the others. I think that gives you a better idea of really what's going on. And so that's, those are the things I'm gonna highlight in, in the data here. So. Just briefly, I'm going to run through these slides fairly quickly. Please stop me if you have any questions. This was 2016. 
for days, you can see the same pattern occurs that I just showed you for the for the entire department. Most of the stops are made in the downtown area, followed by the other areas. You'll notice, though, they make a lot fewer stops during the days than they do at night. So they make a lot of stops at night, relatively few stops during the day, but the pattern of where the stops occur is very similar. Okay, so this, uh, this slide then shows disproportionality based on the, the zones where most of the stops are being made at. So the red bar represents our benchmark, and the blue bar represents the percentage of stops made by the police department. Anytime that the blue bar is higher than the red bar, that's disproportionality. And so when you look through this, you say, well, there's a fair amount of disproportionality in a couple of these zones. So if you look at uh, 30, for example, you can see that the, well, make sure my, here we are, I have to do it this way. So you can see that the blue bar is quite a bit higher than the red bar. You also see that right here in uh, zone 27. But if I go back to the previous slide and you look and you see zone 27, relatively few stops are made there, right? So all this, the, the lion's share of the stops are being made in zone 21. And if we look at the disproportionality there, you can see it's much lower. So. And this is what we found for all years of the data. Pretty much every time we look at Iowa City, we see this. In the areas where a lot of stops are being made, it tends to have lower levels of disproportionality, which is a good thing. I mean, that shows that, um, you know, the areas where they're really concentrating their, their um, traffic enforcement, they have lower levels of disproportionality than the other areas. So zone 29 is the Broadway area right here. And... Get my mouse to work again. So zone 29 is right there. And there's relatively low disproportionality there. So in the two areas where a lot of stops are being made, the level of disproportionality is fairly low. And just to uh, uh, give you a highlight of what's coming, the same we found the same pattern on, uh, in 2017. So 16 and 17 very similar in this way. And then nights, here's nights. So you can see they made 10,000 stops on nights. They made about 2,500 2, on days. So they make a lot more stops during the night, but the pattern of where the stops are being made is very, very similar. And again, that's the same for 2017 also. And then the disproportionality. Again, we see, so there's disproportionality in zone 27 and 30 again, the same as we saw before. Uh, and you'll want to pay attention to 21 because that's where most of the stops are being made at. Very, uh, lower levels, comparatively lower levels of disproportionality in 21 and in 29. The two areas uh, that we really look at closely, there's lower levels of disproportionality there. And if you go back and so if you look at 30, you can see the bar is pretty small there on 30. So not too many traffic stops being made there. Uh, Dr. Bonner, and, and just to look at the, the two bar charts you have there, there seems to be a pretty clear difference in pattern from day to night in terms of disproportionality. The, the, you know, the difference in, in <clears throat> police stops versus what you're expecting by the benchmarks yeah. is much greater at night, right? I, I would say that there is more disproportionality at night, yes, I think that's right. Um, especially in the areas that where fewer stops are made. 
I, I'm really cautious about talking about disproportionality in areas where the numbers are a little bit lower because, you know, with statistics, we really worry about the law of large numbers. So, um, it, you know, there might be an element of sampling error there, but we do s tend to see it year after year. So, yes, I, uh, so there, there tends to be uh, more disproportionality at night, which is interesting uh, for a couple of reasons. Uh, it's harder to tell who's driving a car at night, for one thing. But for another thing, I think, and, and uh, Captain can tell me if I'm wrong here, but I think the younger officers tend to work at night, and um, they tend to be more aggressive, and that could lead to disproportionality, too, as well. Could you clarify something in terms of this data? Mm -hmm. um, does this, do, do calls for service affect the stop at all? Or are all of these situations where the officer makes a visual observation? If you could just Yeah, that's, that. a, that's a very good question. So no, uh, so we, we pull out the calls for service um, and those types of things. So these, these reflect officer-initiated stops. One, one question I would have is, uh, what are they? What are these stops for? Do you have that information? Yes. Um, so we track <coughs> we, we track two broad categories of stops: uh, moving violations versus equipment violations. I don't have a slide, but I can tell you essentially what it shows. Uh, minority drivers, particularly African American drivers, tend to be stopped more for uh, equipment violations at a higher rate than than white drivers do, and, and the, the opposite is true then for moving violations. So yeah, that's, that's, that's pretty typical what we find, and actually in the other areas where we look to in other, other communities, we tend to find the same patterns. And now again, that can be due to a number of reasons. It could be a profiling issue, right? You, you're looking for a reason to stop a car, so you pick on an equipment violation, or it might be differences between driving populations in terms of the quality of the car based on socioeconomic factors or other things. So that's why this is a little tricky to make um, categorical statements that way. Uh, this just combines the data both day and night, and it shows a very similar pattern here. So this is this this these next few slides that I'm going to show you I think are um, more informative in terms of actually what's going on. And so we not only look at the department as a whole, we look at individual officers. Now the data that I'm going to show you are de-identified, so you won't be able to tell who the officers are. I, I'm not even sure who they are. They come to me de-identified. So. Um, well, actually, they come to me identified, and then I de-identify it. Just make sure I'm crystal clear on that. But so, but then I forget it. So the um, what we do is now we we compute it essentially the same way for each individual officer. So we look at where the officer is making stops, and the benchmark in the area where the officer is making stops, and then we compute the percentage of minority drivers stopped to the benchmark divided by the percentage of white drivers stopped to the white benchmark, which is simply one minus the minority benchmark. That gives you a quasi-odds ratio measure, 
right? So, like, that's, you know, if you want to think about it, it's like betting odds, you know, one to one means even odds, right? So that's good. If you have a score of one, that means based on the benchmarks and, you know, the percentages that should be stopped, that means that a, a white driver and a, and a minority driver are equally likely to be stopped. As the scores increase, that's an indicator of disproportionality. So, for example, a score of two would mean that based on our benchmarks that minority drivers are twice, is, the odds are twice as great that minority drivers will be stopped in comparison to white drivers. Got to be careful how you say that. It can change the meaning. But that's the correct way to say it. So the odds are twice as great that a minority driver will be stopped in comparison to a white driver. Three, three times as likely, right? So larger scores are bad. And so what we do then is keeping in mind that our data, our, our benchmark data are a sample, and so we worry about sampling issues. What we look at is what's called an internal benchmark where we compare officers against each other. So officers, you know, we can compare their scores against each other and we can look at how many stops they made. And what we look for are officers who are different from the others. And that's, that's uh, indicative of perhaps a problem. So this just gives you that formula that I just talked about. We call it a disparity index. <clears throat> so this is the data from 2016 right here. So um, as you look at the data, if you look on the, on the, uh, the number of stops run up the y-axis, the vertical axis there, so as you, as you move up that, that's a higher number of stops. As you look, you can see there's an officer that made 1,500 stops in that year. That's a lot of stops, by the way. And as you move on uh, towards the right on the x-axis or the horizontal axis, that's the disparity index. So that, uh, that bold red line is the median for the department. And then the little dashed line is the 90, 90th percentile. So 90% 90, 90 of all the officers are below that line or less. So what we do then is we look for officers are, who are to the right of that line because they would be different. And again, we talk about the, the law of large numbers. So that blue line that is horizontal is a, a benchmark of it, they made at least 100 stops. So we really don't pay too much attention to any officer that is under that 100 stop mark because uh, it really, especially when if they're making stops in lots of different areas, that really could be sampling error. But once you get over 100 stops, the data become more stable. And so as you, as you look at these data, and get my mouse to work here, you can see right here that we have an officer, this is an outlier with a high score. So that, that officer has a disparity index score of six. And based on what I said, that would mean that the odds are six times as likely that an officer would stop a minority driver in comparison to a white driver. And it's very different from the rest of the officers. So this is, uh, th these are the types of things that we, we think are a little more revealing than the aggregate data. And what we like to do is track these types of data across, uh, longitudinally across uh, a number of years. So um, I'm gonna show you the same graph now for 2015. And you can see there's the same pattern. There's an officer here, right here. 
with a higher score, and that happens to be the same officer. So, um, so obviously, the command staff knows about this. I think they're concerned about it. You know, this was. We actually, I was brought down here for some training um, and talked to the officers about this and so on and so forth. We, we look closely then uh, when we get information like this at, at um, the second half of the study, which I'll talk about in a minute, the outcomes. So the outcome of the stop, right? So what can happen as a result of a stop? You can, you can get a ticket. You can get a warning. You could maybe um, have your car searched. You could get arrested. Right, so we, we look for then disproportionality among the officers that kind of stand out in these other areas. Uh, one thing we did find with this officer, there tended to be high levels of disproportionality in the outcomes as well. So, so um, this is an issue that I know Chief is concerned about, and um, so I think what I'll do here real quick is I'm going to jump ahead to the 2017 data of the individuals and show you that, rather than the aggregate stuff, which is very, very similar to 2016. But we'll go past the outcomes here and jump to it real quick. So th these are the index values uh, for 2017. And um, although there is an officer out here that has a, re a relatively high score in comparison to the rest, it's not the same officer. That's a different officer. And the score, the values, I'd, if you look on the, on the axis, the x-axis, you can see that the scores are actually lower. They're down around four instead of six. So, um, but this officer, the officer that's making a lot of stops is constant across there. That officer has low levels of disproportionality. So, 2015 and 16, we saw an officer with a high level of disproportionality. 2017, that officer's numbers, that officer now is one of the many dots instead of standing out amongst the others. So that's where that's at. So um, any questions on that be, or before I move on to the, to the outcomes? This, this is the part that really I think is probably the heart of the report here. I'm having a little trouble understanding the, uh, the dotted red line, which I think you said was the median yeah, that's the disproportionality median. index, correct? For the department. For the department. And it seems to have increased from 2015 to 16 to 17. You have a sharp eye. Yeah, That's exactly so that right. That doesn't sound good to me. So. No, and, and so. Um, and so that's why I think maybe that our benchmarks maybe are a little low. That's why we're really looking again. Maybe, maybe the driving population has changed, which would cause that line to shift. So you notice that all the officers kind of the grouping stayed the same. Mary, so, I mean, they're all kind of the same, but the line moved, which, which would indicate, you know, it, it would be kind of unusual for everybody to stay the same and increase in their disproportionality. So I think maybe that our benchmarks are a little low. So that's why I say you, the takeaway isn't so much what the, what the numbers are, the actual numbers are, but the pattern. It's the pattern that's important that you look at. But you're absolutely right. Yes, that, the, the, the median value has creeped up every year. Yep, that's correct. 
Are there any Department of Justice standards that can be identified that we should shoot for? In terms of like these individual scores? Well, well, disproportionality. I mean, have they identified any sort of that we can sort of link up with in terms of national standards? Well, the, the problem um, with this with this part of the work is that uh, in the literature and and if you, if you look at the you know the <coughs> Department of Justice, the, the big problem is the benchmark issue. Everybody knows that the benchmark is problematic. I think the way we do it here is about as good as you can get, you know, actually watching the traffic, but admittedly, it's not perfect. And so, no, to, I guess to answer your questions, because the benchmark is so problematic, pretty much all research done in this area now is done on the outcomes, because the outcomes, you don't have to worry about a benchmark. You just, now you're, you're, you have a closed data set, which, is, which are the stops, and you compare what's happening to the people who were stopped. So you don't need to worry about the benchmark. So that's pretty much where the research at is at now. But really, the most important part of this, in, what, in my opinion, people, researchers, should strive to do is get this front part right because you can't get a ticket unless you're stopped, right? So, um, so the so the decision to make the stop is really, in my opinion, the most important part. But it's the hardest part, and so this isn't perfect, you know. That I guess that's the takeaway that. We could be wrong on our benchmarks. I don't think we're way off, but we could be a little bit off, which could explain numbers changing like that. But when I see a pattern where, I, where one officer is very different than others, that, frankly, is concerning. I'd say last year, if I remember correctly, Chief Matherly uh, indicated that he was taking these results seriously and, and was going to try to work with the, the, the police officers uh, to get the disproportionality down, yeah. especially for the at least one or maybe two or three officers who were pretty high uh, to the far to the right on your graph. Yeah. And it sounds like he succeeded in, in yeah. that. Yeah. Uh, okay. Anyhow. No, I, I would agree with that. I, I know he's taking it seriously uh, based on my conversations. He's had me in to present the data. I present these these same graphs to the officers. The officers know who these dots represent. They, you know, I think they know what this means. If you're showing up in a spot where you shouldn't be, I mean, I, I hope they understand that. I'm pretty sure they do. So, yeah, I think, uh, you know, I, I really credit the Iowa City Department and, and the other departments around the state that are doing this because they, they're really doing this on their own. They're sticking their necks out. There's, most, most departments won't do this. Several of them won't even talk to us. Uh, they don't want to know. And so this is really commendable by these departments that are doing it. So I really do applaud them because they really do care about it. Do you, do you have the, um, you know, within these quadrants, uh, very specific information in terms of where the, uh, the stops are taking place, like a given intersection, no. things of that sort? No, so um, I don't have access to the so so the so the data I get doesn't have the the x y coordinates which are quasi uh, longitude and latitude designations. So now mine are grouped by these these areas. So the best we can do is the, the one mile area. So for example, the officer who was uh, the outlier in the previous two slides. 
happens to work in an area town that has a relatively small area of high minority concentration, but he doesn't just work in that area. He works a large geographical area. And so the officer, what that indicates to me, is probably spending time in the area where the, the minority residency, the high minority residency is at. And um, when I speak to the officers, I always say, well, why do you do that? I mean, that's the question I ask. I get a variety of answers for that. Some, you know, are, are better than others. But, uh, and, and it's a legitimate question. It's a legitimate policing question. It's a, it's, a, it's a question that the community should talk about. Do we want the officers in a certain area more than others and so on and so forth? And then the second question I always ask the officers is, because um, typically the response I get is, well, I spend the area, I, I spend my time in the area where there's a lot of calls and, and, and types of calls that are, you know, involve violent crime or maybe guns and stuff like that. And so I, what I ask is, and I don't know the answer to this, so I'll, I'll just throw out the question is, does traffic stops reduce that type of crime? Does doing a traffic stop reduce gun crime? Um, you know, and and the literature isn't clear on that. To you know, maybe it does, maybe it doesn't. So it's it's a legitimate. It's something that I think really that's that's uh, community stakeholders and the police. That's a good thing to talk about right there. That's that's where this type of work I really think should lead to is that discussion. Conversely, if we get the reduction in disproportionality, <clears throat> is there any empirical data on the reduction of crime? In the sense of more community buy-in, yeah, I, none that I'm aware of. That's 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 very interesting. No, I haven't uh, I haven't seen where um, lowering levels of disproportionality has lowered violent crime. I not may exist. I just haven't seen that that literature, so I'm not aware of that. In in the cities you've worked, have you seen any patterns with respect to just the absolute numbers of stops go down? Yes. And what may be the reason for that? So I, I don't think I'd be speaking out of turn to tell you that Davenport has had that issue. We work with Davenport. That's our home base. And um, they have seen a precipitous drop in the number of stops made since we've done the study from 12,000 down to 6,000, yeah, roughly. And um, my personal opinion is that that could be a morale issue on the police department. Uh, I think it could be, and again, I'm just giving you my opinion here, right? It could be that the officers are like, well, you know, I'm out here working and my work's being scrutinized, so I just won't make any stops. Because that crazy professor over there at St. Ambrose, so. So, and that concerns me, actually. I think that's, that's something to really be concerned about. Um, I talk a lot to the chief over there about that. And it's, it is an issue. There's no, there's no question about it. Because I, I mean, to me, I appreciate the focus of your, your research, which is not really looking at that issue. But that, that's, an, that's to some degree, where I'm coming from is how can we just reduce the number of stops? I don't want it to be for the reason you were describing, but you know, to the degree we can drop the number, whether it's improving our roadway design so that there's less likelihood that someone would be cited for a moving violation, um, getting all those you know equipment-related stops handled in some other fashion, um, 
so we just drop the you know the number of uh, encounters by dropping yeah. the number of stops. So when their um, when their stops drop there, now I haven't done their data for this year yet. The level of disproportionality remained relatively the same, but the absolute number of stops went down. So I, I think one area when I when anyone asks my advice about this. Um, the, the police should shoot for is fairness. Uh, so what, you, what, what the police departments should try to get away from are the fishing expeditions where, okay, okay, this guy looks suspicious to me. I don't really have any reason to stop him, but the uh, taillight's out, so I'm going to stop to find out who this guy is, and, and while I'm up there, maybe I'll ask him, can I search your car? You know, those types of things. So, um, which, which actually can be good police work in certain circumstances, but if you're doing it disproportionately to one group at the expense of another, that's, that's bias. So that's the type of thing, really, that I would hope would come out of this, getting away from that sort of thing. So I know Maz has a question she'd like to ask, and then I'm very conscious of the time. Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah no, I'm going to be very quick, really. Uh, I just want to, you know, you brought a very good point on Rockney, too, and that was all the time while you were reviewing. This was, like, my thinking. Uh, maybe you cannot answer this question, but the uh, police department can. Uh, when I saw the number of a stop generally, you know, I just find out that there is a lot of like stops somewhere and law stops somewhere else across town. And I, I saw this is supposed to be equally everywhere if we are, if the police are like going around town equally. That's giving me sense that the police is spending more time somewhere else. So beside downtown, I guess, as you brought the Broadway, and they, they're spending more time there, which is not supposed to be. Why are they spending more time there? That's my question. they supposed to be, the, the police supposed to be like really driving equally around the city to make sure like everywhere is okay. But he like just is spending time in front of the minority people. That's why you're getting like all this, uh, you know, stop uh, for minorities, I guess. This is really good questions we want to ask the police department why the police is doing that. <coughs> and I'm going to end up, this is biased, too. Sure. Dr. Barnum can pull that map back up, but the areas where there are the majority of the stops, minority population aside, are also the arterial streets. So they're the downtown block. They're the block just north of downtown, so between downtown and Interstate 80 on Dubuque Street, it's the block south of downtown that you're traveling out. I, I don't disagree with what you're saying, council, council member, as far as certainly the Broadway area, and you're talking about minority population there, but the areas that he has pulled up here are basically the downtown area, the arterial streets approaching from the north from the interstate, the arterial streets going south from the downtown area down to Highway 6, and then Highway 6, where the highway's out east and west. So it's not just the neighborhoods. And I, I would disagree with you in that e each neighborhood should have the same amount of stops, because there isn't the same amount of need for, for public safety enforcement for traffic control if, you know, if there's 1,000 cars that are using any particular street downtown over a course of an hour, and there's two cars out in a particular outlying neighborhood that are using the streets for that same hour period. So, so it's driven also by 
a bunch of other things, volume of traffic, alcohol-related offenses, things like that. And what we're trying to do is make sure that it's what the chief is trying to do is make sure that it is being driven by public safety concerns and traffic concerns and that it is not being driven by disproportionate minority contact and where he's identifying that or where he's even suspecting that, he's addressing it both on the officer level and with the redeployment of resources. In the, in the remarks that I spoke to you about at the beginning, he talked about data-driven enforcement. Uh, one of the grants we're participating in is just that. One of our officers is tasked to the Justice Department and is trying to better allocate police resources, not just ours, but come up with a better model of allocating police resources that is data-driven, not just, boy, I, I think that this particular group of people or this particular neighborhood is involved more in crime, so therefore I'm going to go on the fishing expeditions that Dr. Barnum referred to. We are trying to move away from that, and we're trying to participate in programs that show us how to do that. I, I don't know, but I, what I'm looking here is fairly enough, if I understand it right, 29 is south downtown, 13 is north downtown. Am I right? Yes. Yes. Okay, then the, it is, what's the difference? Is you, you're telling me there is more traffic on the 29 zone. Correct. Than more traffic on the 13 zone? There's more traffic on 29, 13, 30, and 28 than than many, if not most, of the and other And there is blocks. more traffic on the west and the south, the south than anywhere else on, around town beside the I'm not talking about downtown, by the way, okay? Because that's, just leave the downtown alone. I'm talking only about south side and the other side, comparing like to the other side of the city. You're telling me in Iowa City, the only a lot traffic at the south side of the city. No, I'm not telling you that. Then you have more stop here, and we have to look closely why we have more stop here. My guess is that, as he said earlier, if I understood him right, the police spent more time there. And why, that's the question. What if, do we have there so they can spend, we have minority people, that's the only thing that I know. If I could, I think in the yes, interest sir. of time, it would be good if uh, once Chief Matherly uh, returns from, um, you know, recovering, uh, if if he could uh, provide us with a short report addressing this question that Maz has raised, so that we can get a you know direct answer from the chief on it, I think it'd be very helpful. And your response was very good, Troy. But you know, it's a good question. We need to understand the particulars uh, involved. Dr. Barnum, you know, I, you, you're doing a great job. Uh, I wonder if you could just kind of give us the punchline here. Yeah, I can. So, um, so the punchline on the outcomes and getting the outcomes are, are what happened to you as a result of the stop is, um, so citations, the, the level of disproportionality is decreasing. It's almost one, it's almost at one now, which means even there is no disproportionality. <clears throat> Arrests. Uh, so that number has come down over the years, as you can see from this graph. So the disproportionality in arrests is, is decreasing. So that's good. Uh, search requests. 
There were some issues with the officer's understanding of what a search request was. I could spend a lot of time on that. I won't. Uh, needless to say is now they do not mark their boxes as a search request when it really isn't one, and there's practically none of those. So a search request is when you ask somebody, can I search your car without any probable <laughs> cause. So that's gone away. That's a good thing. So that these are some very positive uh, issues. And then this last slide is the hit rates after a search. Those go up and down, which show there's no difference between racial groups in terms of whether you find something on a stop. So the bottom line then, if I was going to sum this all up, is that although the level of disproportionality looks like it might be creeping, we don't know if that's due to uh, changes in the benchmark. That's why we're working hard to see that. And uh, what we're really focusing on then are to see if we have any officers out there that are different from the other ones. So that's, that's kind of where we focus our work. Thank you for your attention. I appreciate it. Excellent. Thanks so much. Thank you. Really appreciate you doing this good work for several years now. Well, it's my pleasure. Thank yeah. Are, are we going to be able to see a, a, a version of this PowerPoint presentation? I mean, you know, the, the full sure. thing. Sure. We can place it in the info packet. I think uh, if other council members agree, I think it would be helpful. Well, I know I'd like to, we kind of compelled Chris to skip over a whole bunch of information there and, uh, and yet be helpful to have it in hand. Yeah. I could just make a couple of quick comments. Uh, the, the data that you reviewed this year, 2016-2017 data, uh, Chief Matherly was was hired in 17, in the beginning parts of 17, uh, took some time to assess the issue, and I think has reported back to you on his plan to address this. Um, it, it's it takes a while, it, and and you can see the investment that's going in with officers, uh, with with training, with just reviewing this study in more detail than we ever have before with officers, so they can understand it, so that they can ask questions, uh, so that they can learn from it. That is happening, and there's good open discussion. The chief mentioned in his memo uh, an internal committee of police officers uh, at all levels uh, that are working on the DMC issue and coming up with ideas like bulbs. So um, the discussion is taking place daily uh, within the walls of the, of the department, and I really hope and expect to see that as that uh, investment in training pays off and that investment in just focusing on this issue pays off, you're going to continue to see improvements, uh, not only in the numbers, but you're going to see improvements in the in the strategies we deploy. Uh, you're going to see more community policing efforts. You, hopefully you already are, are seeing that uh, these past uh, this past year or two. But all that's going to pay, and I expect that as we continue to do this study, you're going to see that bear fruit in these results. Okay, doke. So it's 6:30 now. We can get going on the next topic. Uh, I don't know how far we'll be able to get though. So we have a pre-budget kickoff discussion, and we've already blown a hole in our time budget. So uh, Ashley, do you want to lead us to this? Uh, sure. Uh, essentially, we're just looking for feedback from uh, council if there are any comments or. Uh, projects, programs, services that uh, staff should start examining or thinking about including in the upcoming budget planning process. We start our staff discussions uh, with capital projects and then move on to operational expenses and other city budget items later in the fall. And so I just wanted to quickly summarize our um, mid-year 
budget work session, I guess, or, or activity that we put on earlier this month. Uh, council had asked for some additional opportunities for the public to participate in our budget processes, and uh, staff took the idea from last January's uh, breakfast on a budget morning activity prior to the uh, major work session on the budget and ran with it. So we held a chip-in event, which was uh, uh, engaged about 50 residents from Iowa City and had gave a quick presentation on just the status of the budget and some things that we think about when we're preparing the budget and then uh, had them participate in a prioritization activity. Uh, they voted with chips based on strategic plan goal items and uh, we had maps plastered on the wall so that people could uh, circle or make comment on the maps, identifying areas that needed improvement. And we also had an area for them to submit specific comments and, and ideas. So uh, it was a busy night and we got a lot of feedback. We also had an online platform. We received almost 600 responses. Uh, so there were over 900 so open-ended responses that I'm still working through um, as comments for for what people would like to see. So uh, I did give you a summary in the packet. Um, the top three, though, we identify the strategic plan top goals and so what the people who have participated um, indicated to us their top uh, goals were advancing social justice and racial equity was number one uh, as a ranking. We had a fostering healthy neighborhoods throughout the city of Iowa City. That's our strategic goal number three. And then number one was um, promoting a strong and resilient local economy. That ranked third. So I'll just note those couple. We also have uh, overall our general feedback what we received from residents who participated in person and at, in the online survey. Uh, top areas of focus, they'd like to see streets and infrastructure, um, really taking a focus on our on our streets. Same with public transportation improvements. So these ranged in the comments from um, bus transportation to um, bicycle facilities. Uh, we wanted to encourage equitable and sustainable economic growth. So working on exactly what areas they're they're trying to target. Affordable housing is a big issue. Supporting education and workforce programs was in the top five. Uh, council's been mentioning that, and that continued to be something that um, the participants were interested in seeing more of. Um, building and promoting a livable community for all people goes back to our uh, social justice item. Supporting small business and entrepreneurs, connecting to our uh, strong local economy uh, goal historic preservation, supporting a reduction in consumption of goods, and minimizing solid waste spoke to our climate action and uh, environmental goals, uh, strategic plan number six. And then supporting organizations helping those with trauma and crisis. So that was um, just the top 10 uh, that were submitted by people in person and online. And we've got the whole a packet of information if you really wanted to dig deep into specific responses, but I figured I'd give you an overall sense of what people are interested in, and then we verbatim provided all comments. So 
you can spend hours reading through <laughs> if you like. Um, that's what I'm doing and, and pairing the locations that people identify it as needing improvement with things that we can address. Um, some of them are, are might be quick turnaround. We might be able to just address them with staff. Um, you know, if people say fix a pothole in this area or, or I hope we plant trees in a park that we're planning to improve already, then, you know, we'll be taking care of some of those things. But um, anything major will we'll come back to you or you might spot something that catches your eye and let us know. Um, so I think the thought was to, to request any projects or ideas that you had during this time. I don't know if we have time to do that right this minute or not, but that's the sense of our mid-year efforts. So. Yeah, I'm sorry was, we did chew up some time there. Yeah. <laughs> I was here for the chip-in and thought it was a great event, but in hindsight and, and looking at this mm -hmm. voluminous report <laughs> that you've put together, one of the things that, that did occur to me, if, if we're really trying to get input from the public on the budget and how they want money spent, then I think any effort to get that input should somehow give them options on all the kinds of expenses we have. And so the, the in-person thing really only gave them an opportunity to comment on strategic goals. And so I think it's, I mean, it listed certain things underneath those. I mean, there are action items, I think, underneath those. But, I mean, if you think about any of the other services, you know, whether it's streets or police or fire, um, just kind of the, if you will, the ordinary everyday services that we're always providing, but we are allocating a significant amount of money out of our general fund to provide. It's focusing only on the strategic planning goals didn't really give them an opportunity to say, hey, maybe I don't care about any one of those strategic plans. I want you to spend all that extra money on the streets or whatever. So that's the only particular comment I would have is just yeah. more of an opportunity to look at the whole budget in a digestible way. I mean, some kind of major categories, obviously, mm -hmm. um, so they could put their chips. Because I, I guess what my thought is, I wouldn't want people to think that because they voted for certain strategic planning initiatives that they don't care about those other things. They weren't given those options on the in, on the in person. So just, I didn't think of it that night. Okay. It just kind of came to me as I looked through this afterwards. Yeah, we tried to cover that with, there was three stations mm -hmm. right, and there was kind right. of open-ended station and then there was the map and then there was the strategic priorities. Yeah. I think it was a great initiative and I know mm -hmm. uh, in a meeting we had at some other point, um, at least one of our council members praised uh, staff for inventing this chip-in idea. So it's a great initiative. But one thing I'm conscious of, though, is that anything that involves voluntary participation on the part of residents automatically means there's self-selection involved. Mm -hmm. yeah. So that yep. bas basically biases things in unknown directions because of that self-selection. So I, I don't mean that as criticism. I just think it's a fact uh, at hand. I, I was struck by their, uh, the, the residents or participants' attention to basically roads, you know, and improving the, the condition of roads and and, uh, and sidewalks, I guess, but mainly roads. And boy, that's not a new topic, but it, I, I think it clearly is something we need to try to pay more attention to in the forthcoming budget. Who knows yet what's really possible, but if we could ramp up that, you know, the resurfacing budget, some more 
and target the streets that are in the greatest need, that, that would really be helpful. Now that Dubuque Street will be done. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> um, yeah we're, we're hoping it will be done. <laughs> yeah. And another thing that comes to my mind, and you all surely have your own views about various things, is I, I think we need to be considering the possibility of adding staff. I know it's expensive. Each staff person costs, I don't know, $100,000 uh, approximately per year. Not in terms of salary, but in terms of salary and benefits, et cetera. Uh, but, Jeff, you have several times in the past indicated that there are certain departments that are really feeling very stressed, uh, mainly because they haven't had any, had any additions to staff, or maybe they've had reductions over the years, and yet expectations in terms of workload have increased pretty substantially. So I think we need to at least consider that possibility of adding staff for a few key de uh, departments. And I'm thinking of Public Works, I'm thinking of Parks and Recreation, because you've named them before maybe others. I'm also thinking, we got recommendations from uh, from our bicycle master plan and the climate action uh, uh, and adaptation plan to hire half-time people for those uh, activities. We should, at a minimum, at least consider the possibility of having, uh, having half-time people uh, take on key responsibilities. I'm not saying we got to do it, but I think we, we should consider those possibilities. We could we could spend another three or four minutes on this if any of you have any. Well, I just wanted to briefly comment on the chip in. Obviously, with any public participation, there's always difficulty in terms of a lot of things that the public doesn't see on a day-to-day -day basis in terms of the competing priorities. But that said, I'm really viewing this process as sort of our initial pilot to try to get this process yeah. in. Yeah. And all I'm really looking for is that even though there is a self-selecting process, hopefully we can do some additional outreach, that we can maybe pick one or two trend lines and then come back and say, you know, in a meaningful way, this was affected by the public participation because a lot of times people thank us for spending the money and I think, why do you thank us? It's your money, right? We're just the trustees for that and it, and it is their money and so I think to get that input and for them to get say, hey, this was resulted from that process I think would be really helpful. Thanks. I think as Jim talked about the roads, I saw that, and then also was public transportation improvements. I think uh, a lot of these responses of the 600 uh, online responses really highlighted some of the things we've talked about that, that we need to do and that we're planning to do. So I think increasing the budget for, for the roads and then uh, with the transportation study and looking mm -hmm. at that and, and hopefully if we need to, putting more money into the different routes and, and more buses. So I think that, yeah, that was at, important. At some point, that seems right. to be in the works, but we'll right. have to see the results of the transit study to have a clear idea about that right yeah it caused me to think about um, in terms of toolkits you know kind of this question of how there's it's so difficult to prioritize um, budget but if we had as we do with equity an equity toolkit if we had um, a toolkit related to sustainability to questions of livability which all of course would need to be defined it's a, it's a very broad concept but how do we, you know, how do we look at these things in terms of achieving these goals? Uh, what would be, you know, the most cost-effective way of, of implementing them? Okay. Any other comments? Well, if I could just wrap up with, if council members have 
specific projects that you want us to consider as staff going into the budget, if you could let me know, I can always aggregate those and report back to you so you know what everybody is uh, offered. Uh, but it is a lot easier for us to make those considerations in September and October than it is in January mm -hmm. and February. And I know you things change and something's going to come up in January that you can't anticipate now, but to the extent that you can anticipate those, please forward those on to me uh, you know, in the next couple of weeks, and I'll aggregate them. I'll push them back to you all. You can decide if you want to discuss them more or not, but that's really helpful for us. All right, we're going to have to disband our happy crew uh, briefly here. I guess, uh, we're going to have to come back to this after the formal meeting, right? So we will pick up uh, with the possibility of increasing hourly staff wages and then move on to the rest of the work session agenda after our formal meeting. Okay, so we're done for now. So information packet discussion, please take a look at your notes and see if there's anything in the first agenda packet you want to draw attention to. Item five, is that five? Yeah, item five on the August 9th packet, uh, the memo from Brad Newman about uh, uh, exploring the possibility of establishing a quiet zone on the Iowa Interstate Railroad in Iowa City. I think that's a good idea. I've heard uh, various complaints over the years about the horn, and especially given the nearness of some residential properties, one of which is being constructed or soon will be built. Uh, I think it's a good idea to look into that. Anything else on that packet? I don't want to rush all, but you know, I want to get some dinner. <laughs> all right, temporarily moving on. August 6th, anything in that packet? 16th, you mean? I'm sorry, 16th. Well, I think let me start with item five, pending work session topics. Uh, given our vote tonight on the uh, <clears throat> on 12 Court Street, I think we need to pin down a time for a work session discussion about height bonuses. Uh, I had mentioned earlier the possibility of doing that prior to the end of September. Let's find a time that we can actually do. Maybe we'll have to have a uh, special session on that, uh, given the complexity of what's involved. I think we also should just kind of get ahead of the game and put on the pending list uh, a topic with a name kind of like this, review the downtown historic property inventory and consider how to proceed. I know it's in the works. We'll get it sometime in the next month, two, something like that. We could get it on the list. And that'll work its way to you through the Historic Preservation yeah. Commission, but we can add it. Yeah. Yeah, so I don't want to be jumping the game there. It just I know we're going to end up discussing it. Any other items on that packet? Well, on on IP five, the pending work session, you know, yeah. earlier tonight, there was this question of um, you know the on narrow streets and how to address the parking. And uh, I'm just looking at at some of the um, strategic plan items requiring initial city council direction. Mm -hmm. 
you know, we have one where there will be review of the preliminary traffic accident analysis and a related set of recommendations, and we'll hear from uh, Professor Jody Plummert. I'm wondering if we might be able to fold discussion of this um, topic into that. Uh, I mean, part of the reason I, I, I would like to discuss it a little bit further is the one of the primary um, reasons for that idea of kind of creating a chicane effect with parking is traffic calming. And um, so I, I, I'd be interested in just hearing a, a little bit more on it. Well, it's, I'd say if the staff thinks that's feasible, that would be a good idea, but I... We could combine it. That's fine. I'd support putting on a work session. Yeah, I'm seeing It sounds like we have, looks like we have at least four nods, so... Okay. Any other topics? All right, I'm going to move on to the last item, council updates on assigned boards, commissions, and committees. We could start with John and move to the left. Um, no, I mean, I had ICAT. I'll, I, just, I mentioned TEDx. I think that's something to worth think, think about going to or watching one of those sites. City literature will be meeting soon, so I'll have an update probably next meeting. There's a whole bunch of writers in town from the uh, International Writing Program. All their new fellows are here. And I was talking with Chris Merrill. I know this isn't a city of literature, but it's very close. I was talking with Chris Merrill yesterday, and he was raving about this cluster of fellows. And I, I had already looked at their bios. It, it's a really impressive group of writers. Hmm. A lot of smart people in Iowa City. Maz, uh, you have any update on the boards or commissions? Yeah. we. We have a meeting by the end of the month, so I will report next time. Yeah. Okay. Pauline? Uh, ECIO, ECICOG will be meeting August 30th. Uh, unlike the rest of you, I will have the opportunity to be able to see Tracy and continue to see Tracy at the meetings, which will be great because I, I just love her and she's always smiling, great person, so that'll be good. Uh, I attended um, last Tuesday the Iowa City Community School District Board meeting. I've been just trying to keep up with them, and especially when they're talking about their boundaries and, and there was some concern about their school pairing. Uh, but unfortunately, last uh, Tuesday they were missing two of their members, so they had their board meeting, but they didn't have their work session so they didn't uh, have a discussion about about that but I know they keep saying that integration and equity is important and and but this uh, school pairing is kind of a unique idea and has a lot of pros and a lot of cons so uh, they'll continue that and we need to keep an eye on that yeah it's a pretty important decision they're making mm -hmm. whatever the decision ends up being thanks for going to that I only have one thing to report. This month's uh, Convention Visitors Bureau board meeting was canceled because too many people reported <laughs> they, they wouldn't be able to attend. <laughs> so I don't know. Uh, Josh is kind of scratching his head. What's, what's he going to do? But that's the only report I have other than to say that I'm working with uh, John Lundell and Terry Donahue to, to have another sort of mayor's meeting. We, we try to do this once every three months. We are continuing to make progress on the Access Center. Um, I know that, actually, I'm going to be in a meeting with you and Rod tomorrow. Okay. Rod asked me to come if I wanted to. Um, 
there, I think, as you know, there's there's been an offer on a piece of property um, down on Southgate Street that's public. Um, they're in the process of doing the due diligence. That's part of the conversation that, that Rod Sullivan and I are going to have with Jeff tomorrow um, just to have some preliminary discussion about rezoning that because that property would have to be rezoned um, for public use um, in order to put the access center there. And so we want to make sure before we run out of that due diligence time, and I actually think the rezoning is a contingency even if we got past the due diligence time, but um, so have some discussion on some issues there. Um, it is, I think, in the 500-year floodplain, but it's only going to take, I think, now where they're going to site the building, it would take probably less than a foot of fill to bring it up out of the 500-year uh, floodplain. They already have an, the property already has an easement across the railroad tracks, so that shouldn't be a huge issue. Yeah, they didn't. Yeah, they do. <laughs> Just leave it at that. So that's going to help considerably. Um, people are getting really excited, uh, <laughs> getting very, very excited about finally seeing some things. Uh, people are working with the state and trying to understand all the rules and regulations that are going to control the, quote, access centers, um, starting to work with architects to get nailed down some more details and things like that. So um, trying to get some of those things. I think somebody may be contacting you, Eleanor. Um, just in terms of maybe you and Janet working on the 28E agreement, because my sense from our meeting was really that that 28E agreement is relatively simple. Um, I'm assuming that the county will own the facility and we will have some sort of agreement with them in exchange for handing over money to it so that if it's not used for those purposes and or they sold it or whatever, somehow we get our money back. So. Um, and we're working with um, one of the attorneys from the university hospital, Joe Clayman, who is very knowledgeable about medical-related and healthcare issues. So he's helping with some of the initial drafting um, of, of agreements that might be between um, the county and whoever manages the entity and also between them and any of the local providers. So he's got a lot of that healthcare expertise that really needs to be in those contracts. So he's kind of helping start some of that and certainly that'll be reviewed by Janet and maybe Eleanor, you, you or your staff may be asked to help at some point with that, I'm not sure. Um, so yeah, people are getting very excited, um, starting to think about uh, other money that we might be able to gather, grants and that sort of stuff, um, but also being very cognizant of want, not wanting to um, jeopardize any of the typical donors for our other local nonprofits. So we don't want to be siphoning money away from them, so we're looking at other and new ways of um, getting money. I want to mention one other thing, uh, stimulated by what you say about the Access Center. When I'm at the Mayor's Innovation Project uh, uh, event, I'm going to do sort of a lightning round thing that focuses on the combination of the data-driven justice initiative, Housing First, and the Access Center, and just to report this to the other mayors that are there. Okay, so I think we're done for, with the work session. Uh, so we need to adjourn the work session. No, we need to, we're done. We don't want to have to adjourn it or, at all. Never mind. We're not, we're done with the work session. Mm -hmm.